0: You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at SarahAven.com.
1: Here we are with episode 4 of our mini podcast series for beginner gardeners Now colour is key to me in my whole life and of course in the garden And it is to Arthur, my co-host as well. He's passionate about colour as much as I am. And in this episode, I'm going to lead the discussion with Arthur adding in his thoughts on how we arrange colour into separate palettes in separate areas of the garden. Living on a farm, I'm lucky to have the luxury of space, so I've devoted each area of the garden to a different palette. But even if I only garden with a small space like Arthur, I'd have very strict colour palette segregation. And what I mean by that is it wouldn't be kind of a free-for-all, licorice-all-sort, gloriosa, crazy chaos. Now, the aim of this podcast is to try to explain as simply as I can what I mean by that. As a child, I was obsessed by boxes of crayons, boxes of paints stickers, colored paper that I would cut out and stick. And I just sort of played around with color the whole time. And then I moved on to those, those funny sort of rag rug, but with wool things with those French clips and making cushions endlessly. But it was just always, I was really drawn, literally kind of physically drawn towards color. And walking down the street still now, if I see a really beautiful range of colors like in a bookshop window or maybe in a flower shop but often there it's more dispersed so it's where they're sort of really right next to each other I just I just feel like I can't possibly walk past I have to stand there and kind of suck it all up and and absorb it and I'm sure that's why one of the reasons I became a gardener the other reason is I love nature and I love seasonality and I love being out there and to be brutally honest, I'm quite an idle person in many ways. And I'm not somebody who's got ants in my pants. I'm quite able to sit for hours on end reading or doing something. But what I find is that by going out, I'm just immediately see a whole different strand to life. And that's what gardening does for me. It gets me outside, gets me out of the house, gets me to sort of notice one day changing from the other that something's come out and something else has gone over, and it's about colour. So when I started gardening, I definitely was in danger of getting into the Licorice sort Brigade, and I was sort of wary of that because I didn't want red next to yellow, next to pink, next to white, next to blue, next to green, which I had the most adorable neighbour in my first garden, a man called Don, who I totally adored, who had been in the RAF. And his garden was really like that. It was just incredible. It was like sort of Jim Carner of Shetland ponies with all their rosettes, with just sort of crazy color in every direction. And I adored that. But I wanted mine to be a little bit more sophisticated than his somehow. And so I was really conservative when I started out my first garden, and I I just went for sort of silver and blue and mauve and a purple and I, I don't know, quite quite sort of traditional very safe colours. But to be honest, that bored me. So then when I moved to Perchill, I went to a very consciously starting to think about colour. And I found that I was really drawn to what I call a strong Venetian palette, which was sort of velvety, really enveloping, uh, sort of incredibly sort of rich textural colours. And so It was sort of crimsons, deep purples, really rich blues and perhaps some oranges, but where they're moving into sort of mahogany. So the richer, redder end of orange and those things that that you can just see in velvet. And I'm going to bring Arthur in here. I've been rabbiting along too much already, but I know that that's what got Arthur interested and approached me because he also loved those sort of rich strong saturated colours is that that's right isn't it Arthur? yeah
0: yeah definitely very much so um I mean my mum she always grew Persian carpet mixed wallflowers so I was always exposed to rich colour and I remember getting your books for the first time and it was just wonderful to see that colour properly done in a garden rather than there being lots of candy tones and you know what I call almost sugar paper tones mm. tones that just aren't aren't invigorating and I'm glad you mentioned orange because I find orange increasingly a very happy colour whereas I don't I don't really find that I want whites and Mm. and colours that calm me I I, if anything I I need these colours to invigorate me and make me feel full of life which I think I don't know most people say they want a garden to be calming I've never really wanted that
1: no Um, me neither I want it to be stimulating and exciting I couldn't agree more so I I feel that first band of colour that I've described there that you want to sort of wrap yourself in, that Arthur and I both feel is sort of absolutely at our core, is what I would call the dark and rich. And they're what I think of as the first palette. And, and then what I've found is if you just use those, it can get a little bit somber. It can get a little bit heavy and a little bit dark. And so that's why increasingly in the areas that I had that palette in, what I've found, like in the Oast Garden at Perch Hill, is I've ended up scattering what I call the Boiled Sweet palette, which is the second palette through it. And those are the much sharper tones. So it's acid green rather than rich emerald dark green leaves, for instance. It's sharper orange, so more tangerine orange rather than vermilion orange. It's sort of, you know, real strawberry red It's the really bright, you know, proper Liberty Bag purple or sort of amethyst purple rather than the more cardinal sort of Venetian tone of purple. And they have a a sharpness and a brightness and a lightness to them. And they are like a jar of boiled sweets. So if you go to an old-fashioned sweet shop, which are actually having a bit of a renaissance, I think, because we we love vintage these days. And so old-fashioned and that kind of feel is is very trendy at the moment. But those sort of really luminous stained glass colours are very beautiful, scattered through the dark and rich as the sort of highlights. And I think of it literally like doing a squeeze of lemon on smoked salmon. Smoked salmon on its own is really tasty, but smoked salmon with a squeeze of lemon as the sharp contrast is even lovelier. And I think of the bold Sweets scattered through the dark and rich playing exactly that same role and I know Arthur you use those two together all the time don't you in your containers and stuff
0: yeah I mean you you taught me how important acid green is actually so euphorbia oblongata is um, something increasingly I use as foliage whereas because I love all the venetian tones in my flowers I wouldn't grow something like a atroplex with them because as mm. you've said it it, you just need that little bit of punch, you know, that little bit of champagne bubble amongst yeah. those dark tones to really make it all sparkle rather than it being too into itself.
1: Yeah. So Nicotiana Lime Green, you use mm. a lot, don't you?
0: Yeah, in shady places. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then Zinnia Benari's Giant Lime mm, is another another one too, which gives you that. And, and, you know, that lime is in a boiled sweet, isn't it? So yeah. You know, they're not called opal fruits anymore, are they? They're called sugar some, drops, is it? <laughs> what? They, they, those, um, anyway, it doesn't matter. But, you know, it's a pack of sweets. or um, And they're great on their own. But I find the trouble with those colours is that they can look a bit primary school painting, which sounds horrible. But, and I don't mean like that at all, because there's nothing lovelier and more joyful. But it's perhaps not what we want in our gardens and or perhaps a little bit Ikea, you know, it's a little bit sort of primary in a way. And so them combined with the sobriety of the dark and rich makes a great combination again. So what I think in terms of hierarchy when I'm trying to put together a combination, whether it be in a border, a flower arrangement or a pot, is that if the main emphasis is the dark and rich, I would then maybe just have a scattering of the boiled sweet, or the bold and brilliant same. Or if I was in the bold suite, I would just have a scattering of the dark and rich. And this takes me on to the thing that, as a florist, I kind of evolved when I was teaching, which is I would always put together a flower arrangement. And because I'm picking from the garden, I've got in my head this recipe, which is number one, what colour am I going for as the main colour. And so let's say I'm going claret, for instance. So I would go and pick a dahlia, like Rip City. And that would be what I call my bride. That was the most sumptuous flower in the garden at the time. And then I would pick what I call the bridesmaid, which is the same colour or very similar tonally to the bride, but a bit smaller to back up the bride, but not compete with her. So that's bride and bridesmaid. And a classic one there would be Cosmos and something like Rebenza would be absolutely perfect. And then I would go to the other palette for the brilliant. So I would go to the board suite and pick something from that for the contrast. And that's what I call in my wedding party, I call my gatecrasher. And always the best party is when the gate crashers arrive because it's going to really sing men. And that is exactly what happens in a flower arrangement with the gatecrasher. It just all kind of like, oh, it's exciting And as Arthur and I say, what's the point of putting together a combination if it's not exciting and stimulating? And, you know, just sort of, whoa, yeah, look at that. Got wow factor. For instance, in that sort of combination, I'd maybe go for a single orange dahlia or a semi-double like Waltzing Matilda, something like that. And that would be a really beautiful combination. The thing about those first two palettes is that they contain either no white or almost no white. And Arthur is somebody who is, I think, rightly wary of white. White is a very jumpy colour. It sort of jumps right to the foreground. If you have one white flower in a garden with no other whites, it jumps right there. It's the thing you see first of all. And so the other two palettes are mainly white and with very you know really little pigment or saturation of anything else and they are with that quite cool and sort of pastely and soft and this is where arthur really isn't quite so keen is it
0: i'm afraid not i spent last year trying to love it and i just felt like i wasted a whole season because it's it's just not the color that that makes me want to grow plants i understand uh, for some people they're the opposite they can't stand orange and crimson um, mm. so it's just all about finding that palette and sticking to it you know I, I yeah. thought I could make uh, last year using annuals like Cosmos Purity and Nicotiana cotianas. I thought I'm really going to go for it and I did Unfortunately, it was a summer which was very cold in the evening. So we didn't have many of these lovely, you imagine a white garden like at Sissinghurst when it comes alive on you know, a moonlit night. It mm. was so cold we didn't have any of those evenings. So yeah. unfortunately, yeah. it was the wrong summer to, to do an annual display of, of white. But what I did realise was, again, it kind of reaffirmed how important foliage was. So I had all my lovely scented-leaf pelargoniums, lovely greens, lovely sprays of panicum, millets, all the foliage which I would have combined with the two palettes Sarah's just spoken about, but they were white, so I, I can't wait to, you know, get all my pelargoniums out in the garden again when summer comes. But yeah. I won't be doing any white. At okay. All.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I partly agree with Arthur, but I actually do love one of the next two palettes. So this is palette three, and it's what I call the soft and warm. And this is what I think of as the cashmere jersey colours. And it was Adam, my husband, who actually we were driving around in Crete a few winters ago, actually, when I started work on this book, which I'm still working on, on colour. And I was describing him and he said, oh yeah, those sound like the cashmere jersey colours. I was trying to define the palettes and I thought that was such a good description. But so these are the sort of warm apricots, the warm sort of peachy colours and the very trendy one at the moment, which is sort of milky coffee, sort of latte coffee, cafe au lait type colour where where ivory is mixed with brown. You could call it mushroom soup, but that's rather less attractive. <laughs> and these are very gentle and calming, and they're not cold, they're warm. They don't have blue and purple tones in them, and they are beautiful. They can be in danger of being too sweet and too, as Arthur says, sort of candy shop, and too sickly, actually. But I find if you thread through something that's got a bit of crimson in it or bronze mahogany, then they work really well. So, you know, whether it's the back of a petal of, for instance, uh, the Nicholas dahlia is is a kind of peachy colour, but it's got a nice petal reverse and the buds are slightly different. So you get this thread of a slightly more sombre, sober colour through it and that stops it being too cloying, I think. And so I use a lot of bronze and crimson and mahogany, as I say, just scattered through. Not so much. So that's just the gatecrasher again. It's just a sort of dusting rather than the main colour message. But the soft and warms, I, I do really like. But I agree with Arthur. However long I garden, it's not the one that I'm so passionately drawn to. And I'm going to conclude with the fourth palette, which is a soft and cool. And this is where I really Arthur and I just completely sing from the same hymn sheet as we do on many things but I made a whole garden devoted to this palette which is the pure white it's white mixed with mauve it's sort of the bluey pinks it's a silver which I do use a bit in all the palettes actually because it's quite a universal color but it's silver and it's the cool, pr- really cool yellows. So not the warm, warm yellows, even, you know, verging into golds, go in the rich palette. The sharp yellows go in the bold sweets because, of course, they do because lemon bold sweets. But it's the ones where it's very white and cool. Now, those are the ones that I respond emotionally to least. But we're all different. Some of you will love that, that sort of crisp, kind of quite refined, quite light quite delicate often, but definitely on the cool side and very, you know, very peaceful, non-stimulating. But for me, the cold colours just leave me pretty much cold. And I made a whole garden, the farmhouse garden at Perch Hill. I tried and I've tried and I've tried. And as Arthur says, I just can't get it to work because it's not its not a palette that I respond to. So we are we're taking it out yet again and trying another, well, we're going to just... Revert to the the palette that we did at the Chelsea Flower Show, which was primarily our colour cutting garden. There was the dark and rich with the boiled sweets, and I'm afraid we're reverting to that. So I really have I've I've tried with that that colour, but I I haven't succeeded. So I suppose just to round up, maybe we could both name our favourite plant in the four palettes. So for the dark and rich, Arthur, what would be your favourite?
0: Probably a crocosmia, actually. Okay, maybe, and they're easy to grow yeah, for beginners. Maybe, yep. maybe Emily McKenzie or Lucifer.
1: Yeah, lovely. Um, wonderful lovely. for late summer. Yeah, so that's a lovely perennial, really long-lived. Yeah, that's that's a great idea. So for me, it would be Cosmos Rebenza, incredibly easy to grow from seed, or perhaps a dahlia. Bishop of Auckland is a beautiful single one, mm-hmm. uh, beautiful dark claret flowers. So that would be a good one. Oh, and I just, I said one, of course, now we've said four or five. I've got to mention Calciolera Kentish Hero, which is one of the slipper flowers. I I just love it It, because it's this dark, rich mahogany velvet. And I think not nearly enough of us grow it.
0: Good for shade too.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's a beauty for shade pots and things as well. Okay. So then in the board suite, what would be your...
0: World sweet. I'm going to go for a daily that looks like it's got lots of good e numbers in it. Um, blue Begui.
1: Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah, wonderful.
0: Butterflies adore it. Clear,
1: mauve, purple. Yeah, mm. that that's, that's a great one. I think I'm going to go for, well, I can't go for Calendula Indian Prince again, because I've done that too many times. But I think I'll go for an Iceland Poppy, to be honest. Mm. Um, so... Papaver nudicole, the you know an champagne orange bubbles. single, yeah, champagne bubbles, which has got orange and yellow in it, and I find I go to those a lot, uh, floweringing, and we had a lot of that in our garden at Chelsea, scattered through as a sort of sharp highlight points. So into your least favourite too, <laughs> but what about the soft and warm for you, Arthur?
0: Well, I do. I do love this in the vase. So if I had a big garden, I probably would have a few of them. Daily a Mango Madness. Oh, yeah. It just reminds me of, um, I used to keep canaries called Gloucester Canaries. Mm. And they're the most wonderful, warm, butterscotch yellow, mm. uh, like that like creme brulee yellow yeah. before you put the flame bro on it. Yeah. And it is a very, particularly in the vase, it, it does look beautiful and very warm and inviting, and summer eveningy.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you said creme brulee because mine would definitely be two annuals. One would be phlox creme brulee, which is quite a floppy thing. So you must grow it up through actually two layers of jute netting. So that's more as a cut flower, to be honest. But as a general garden plant, incredibly easy to grow would be calendula sunset buff. And that's, again, got this beautiful sort of pinky into milky coffee colouring, which I think is stunning. And so the final one is the soft and cool. So which would be your... No, he can't think
0: of it. Uh, the bearded iris, a lot of them fit into soft and cool. What don't about they?
1: Cosmos Purity, Arthur? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you could at <laughs> <Sorry. Reese>. least. <laughs> I was going to give you that one. I thought you'd come out with that. <laughs> well, we
0: haven't mentioned from your Fumbergias for the palette we just spoke.
1: Oh, no. Well done. We've got to go back to the soft yeah. and warm. Fumbergias, African sunsets, are absolute number one mainstay for our soft and warm. And it's beautiful with any of those soft and warm dahlias okay so you've got cosmos purity so i'm going to go for a white sweet pea actually i think i might go aphrodite which is a one grown a lot by florists because it's hugely hugely floriferous Mm. and it's got a lot of flower heads ripply flower heads on each stem and a lot of stems on each plant so there we are that is the sort of absolute lowdown of the four palettes whether or not i'll ever get round or find the time to write this book but it's stewing away in my head photos are done (laughs) photos are more than done (laughs) yeah one day I will find time to actually finally write the book so next and our final episode in our mini series is over to Arthur mainly actually I'm going to be the passenger here and it's going to be on containers and so we're going to talk about Arthur's two gardens and a little bit about the pots, what we like, how we look after them at Perchill.
0: You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sirovin.com.